The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. My name is Greg Osimakopoulos. I moved to Marysville when I was five years old, 65 years ago. My dad was called to be pastor of Marysville First Assembly, which we called it at the time. His name was Edwin Smith, and we moved into the Parsonage at 1911 2nd Street. It's still there. I drove by it today. I remember being loved by the families in our church here. The Hagans, the Corsets, the Palumbos, people that touched our lives, my brother and I as little kids, modeling what Jesus' love is like. Okay, my name is Miles Standish Nysinger, Jr., but everybody knows me by Ike. I first came to the uh, Marysville First Assembly at that time, back in the early 50s. Uh, the Stendron family invited me in, and I went, came with them several times to their uh, Sunday school. Hi, I'm Susan Otto. And I'm John Otto. And we've been at the church since 1971. And my parents, my mom got saved and started coming to the church with Pastor Larson. And I, I came with Susie, and uh, it took me a while, but I eventually got saved in uh, 75. And uh, all this time, uh, Pastor Larson, he would come out and visit us uh, now and then, and uh, we'd always get to talk and hunting, because he was quite the outdoorsman. And we'd, uh, we'd talk about goose hunting and uh, steelhead fishing, and uh, I just loved that man from the get-go. That was what I liked about him. He came, even when John wasn't saved, he'd come out and just talk to John and they would just talk about hunting and fishing and he was so just genuine. I mean, he just, and that got John thinking about, you know, coming back to church and, or coming to church and it was just, he was a great man. Hi, I'm Karen Westerfield. Uh, my parents are Ron and LaVon Masters and they pastored the church, um, the Grove Church, it was called Marysville First Assembly back in those days, from 1978 to 1991. Well, the Bleaks were here when um, I was on staff and Heather and Kristen were kind of my buddies. They used to come down to my office, which was down in the building that is no longer. And they ended up, um, when I got married to Tim, they were the flower girls in um, our wedding, so I still have pictures of cute little Heather and cute little Kristen. Um, and now they're all grown up and these beautiful women. Oh, uh, Pastor Masters and I got along pretty good because he, he, was, a, he was from the Dakotas and he was a, uh, a real railroad fan and I worked at the railroad and so we had a great companionship there and his, his teaching was, was really good. He was a really a good, a good teacher. Congratulations, the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. Formerly, Marysville First Assembly. In fact, when Dennis and I pastored, uh, we came in 1990 and we stayed till 207. Those who called Marysville First their home were just amazing followers of Christ. And names like the Andersons and the Ottos, uh, people who uh, loved the mission of Marysville First Assembly. They wanted their kids to be introduced to Christ. They wanted a fabulous youth group where teenagers could have an opportunity to express their faith in whatever educational setting. And then they wanted connection. They wanted community. They wanted life groups and, and relationships. Just amazing people. 
but really a part of the success of the years that Dennis and I were here, along with the people, were some team members, some pastors, some leaders, some directors. Uh, people like Benny Perez and Eddie Willis, John Martinez and Tom Westerfield. We were fortunate to have young people in our youth group. We had a youth revival. It went on for over a year. Our youth group grew from 25 to 500. And a young kid named Nick Baumgart found Christ in that setting and got one of his first jobs. He was actually one of our uh, janitors and he did a great job. But um, over the years, uh, as Nick grew and went to Northwest University, then he got involved in the junior high ministry and what a blessing it is to see what uh, Nick and Heather have done today as now your lead pastors. Hey, Grove Church. Congratulations on 90 years of ministry. That's significant. And let me tell you why this is important to us is because Brenda actually grew up in this church, came to Christ there, and recently her mother passed away this last year. While going through the archives, we found a clip of the original church on Delta, which her great-grandmother attended and prayed for her family. And I think that's one of the prayers that brought Brenda to Christ. It's also important because we were married there uh, 45 years ago, and we are very excited to congratulate you. So, Brenda? Happy birthday. It's pretty humbling to stand up here as one of many pastors and leaders within this church over 90 years, and it's so um, humbling to see some of the names and faces, having really the last few months read, uh, oh my word, countless pages and pages of notes and business meeting minutes and personal stories and things like that from all kinds of different people. Um, we have an incredible heritage, and I'm proud of that, and I'm so glad that we get to be part of this journey together. Uh, you know, you think of 90 years, and it's 2022, so what year was this church founded? I went to Pilchuck, so it's hard, but <clears throat> somebody yelled it out right away. Uh, 1932. And anybody know what was going on in the world in 1932? The Great Depression. If you know history at all, you would know that that was an incredibly tough time for some of us that experienced this pandemic or the housing kind of crash of 08 or whatever. Those were hard times, but, but multiplied, it was even harder back during the Great Depression. And I was thinking about how that's when this church was founded. And over and over, as I continue to read different stories of decisions made and things to consider and stuff to pray about and even at times fast about, what I loved was there's a few themes that I want to mention, but one of them in particular is the steadfastness and, and sacrificial attitude of this church's history. And I love that because going all the way back to, like I said, 1932, this church was established during the Great Depression. And over and over, there were decisions made from all kinds of people um, that, that, again, we're, we're considering what do we do? How do we continue to have this heart for the gospel as we consider this community? Um, from the idea of, of, you know, the purchase of properties and lots and expanding kind of the footprint of the church to navigating through World War II and certain notes that I read about, as well as certain things during the Vietnam War and under Pastor Larson's leadership, and, and which, by the way, it's so cool because Levi Larson, who was the pastor a couple of different eras here at the church, um, 
Uh, he was here when I started in this role in 2009, and um, him and Esther uh, were still part of it. He, well, he had passed away, I'm sorry, but, but Esther was still here, and I remember her sitting right over here on Sundays. She would come and listen to me you know, teach, and she probably thought, he doesn't do as good as my husband, which is fine, um, but uh, just incredible kind of that history. Some of the names that come up, and, and some of you in the room know these names, and some of you are related to some of these families, but I think of the Stensroods. Um, connected to the Borkervinks, connected to the Garkas, and, and that kind of history. I think of, uh, you know, Ella Corset, and in some of the business meeting notes, because there was motions made, and today we still do this in our business meetings, we write down who made a motion, who made a second, as we vote to approve or disapprove of certain, you know, decisions. But um, O.B. Richardson, and, and Brother Hagen and, and all kinds of different people. Um, I, I, I put some in my notes, but with the power outage issues the last couple of days as I was going through my notes, some of the stuff wasn't there, and I'm like, what happened? Where did it go? And, and so I had to write some of them down. But again, I mentioned Obi Richardson. Um, uh, Bob Yulstead is in some of the notes, and yesterday we had a memorial here at the church. Oddly enough, because this church was built in three different eras, this building that we're in right now was built in 1964, 63-64, and then the old Fellowship Hall wing, which is now our kids' wing, was built and grand opened in 1981, which, by the way, forgive me, because some of you had heard me say opened in 1979. I don't know who's responsible for the carpet back then. Um, I still have a bone to pick with that person, but I had the date wrong. It was 1981, so my bad on that, but... Um, but again, there, 1981, and then the office wing in 1986, and we're on a couple of different power grids. Why do I say that? Because at the memorial yesterday, only half of our power was on, and we're like, we don't know what to do. And so literally, Fern Yulstead passed away October 18th. We had the memorial yesterday, and we couldn't have it in here. We didn't have power in here. So we literally had her memorial in the lobby, and the family was super gracious, and they understood the issue, and we said, we can move, it, uh, move the date if you need to. They said, absolutely not, but um, we, we pivoted. I appreciate our team made it happen, but Ken Yulstad was in a bunch of different meeting minutes creating certain motions for you know, properties and, and even carpet conversations, which Rick Ruckty, by the way, some of you know him, um, he was responsible for some of this. So I blame, I'm starting to get down to the bottom of who that was. So that's getting closer and closer. You should be nervous if it was you. Um, um, anyways, but, but all these different names, even way back when, um, when I was in high school, I lived out on Tulalip, and we would drive up Rainwater Road, Turk Road, and then up Cleveland, Van Ness, all the way out to Taylor. But anyway, the reason I say that is because there was connections in some of the notes about Rainwater and Turk, the families, again, connected to the church and how awesome that is. The Palumbos were mentioned, which is a connection to the Oliphants. My daughter was taught, in, or my daughter, my, my wife was taught when she was in second grade by Bob and Ginger Oliphant. And their kids, uh, Mike Oliphant and then Lindsay, his wife, were in our life group uh, a couple years back before the pandemic started. And again, just the history. I know you saw Ron and LaVon Masters and Karen Westerfield, who's part of that family, Evan, who's now part of our team, again, connected there, and of course, the Andersons, and Paul and Debbie, who've been friends of ours for decades now, and, and I adore their family. Even Kyle, to this day, Paul's son, is down in Vegas, and he'll send me notes on how they're doing church stuff in Vegas to help me continue to get better at what we do and stuff like that. So just all these amazing connections, the Coles, the, the, the awesome Acopolises. I, I, I'm awesome Acopolis. Um, I loved Greg's opening to the video because his parents were here in the 50s, and their original last name was Osimokopoulos, but they didn't care for how long it was, so they literally changed it to Smith. 
Right? I'm like, wow, that gets pretty basic, you know, go from this to this. Um, but uh, Edwin and Star Smith were here, and that was in an era where the church was growing significantly and making certain decisions about, you know, what to do as far as the growth. But, but let me go back to what I mentioned. One of the things I noted that was, that, that was glaring to me in a good way was uh, the ability for the church to continue and endure through tough seasons. And I was thinking about, for us, the word pandemic, which nobody likes to talk about, and I'm not going to get a lot into, but it was a really challenging season as a church to figure out how to do ministry, how to love well, how to be, you know, connected together and emails and phone calls that we tried to do like crazy, as well as somebody in a beanie going, let's do drive-in church, and then, okay, let's do that, and, you know, cars showing up, and one of my favorite pictures is on February 14th of, of 2021, we had church, drive-in church, and there was four to six inches of snow, and nine cars showed up. And if you're one of those nine, why did you show up? Because we had to have church. So anyway, um, I'm kidding. <clears throat> but, but I was thinking about that. But then I also thought about, again, how through tough times, there was decisions and calls to prayer and fasting. And one of the toughest times that we had as a church, the pandemic was definitely one of them, but in 2014. And I don't like to bring this up a lot, but when, when the shooting at Pilchuck happened, and all of a sudden, we got word, and, and some of the leaders in our community, because of the connections we had, reached out, and, and we got to be part of trying to figure out how to bring healing and hope to the community. And it goes back to, because we stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before us through hard times, it was amazing to be able to make decisions and prayerfully figure out how do we love well in a really, really difficult season. And yet, it was no different than what I saw in eras, like I said, the Vietnam War and some of the prayers and some of the requests for fasting and, and getting through that season. I go back to World War II and, and the Great Depression, all these different moments that I got to read about in our history. And I was thinking of, we could because they did. And on, I know that's a simple phrase, but we could because they did. And I still believe that's true today. And I love how that's part of our legacy. Another one was... Um, the, the passion for reaching out and, and evangelism. Going back to the 1930s under uh, Brother Goodwin or Pastor Goodwin in the 30s and then after him, Pastor Isaacs. And in the notes, I didn't even see first names. So we'll go with brother and pastor. Anyway, so, but it used to be that way. You say, hey, brother, you know, so-and-so. But anyway, um, but, but they had this thing about wanting to, they had, there was a building that we met in that, that from what I understood was a morgue um, for a while, which we made that joke about cold building, hot building, cold building, because Dairy Queen. Anyway, terrible joke. I blame Jen Irvick for that. So, Jen, you can, uh, you know, terrible. Uh, anyway. um, but, but part of what they both had this vision for was what they called a tabernacle. And I, I got into the notes about the details of it, and here's what was in some of the notes. It says this. This is word for word. The purpose for putting up a building of this type was to have a place in which to hold a service of special summer campaigns that would be large enough to accommodate the crowds that they were sure would attend. Also, there would be many people who would come into that place that would not come to the regular church. And what was amazing to me was a year ago in October, we started what we call the neighborhood. And some of you were a part of it, and I want to say thank you so much, by the way, for being a part of that, but that was the idea. There are people that may not show up in something like this on a Sunday, but that through the love and community and, and a meal together would gather in another place. So at the Marysville Historical Society, for 13 months now, we've had the neighborhood. And we celebrated a month ago the one-year anniversary. Here's what's cool about that. To me, that echoes this heart. And I hadn't even read those words until a couple of months ago. I thought, how cool is that? So that part of it. But the other thing is, 
you might not know this, the neighborhood has been so successful. And again, I want to thank Jesus for that, but I also want to say thank you to those that served so faithfully for a year. This coming Tuesday, we're moving from having one dinner to two because there were so many people. At one point, they had over 130 gather, and if you've ever been in that space, it gets real crowded real fast. So now there's a dinner at 5.30 and in the same space at 7.15 so that they can make room for more individuals to join that. Again, the passion, yeah, to reach out. So I want to say thank you for that. Another part of it was that idea of tabernacle. Anybody remember in the late 90s and early 2000s when we had tent meetings? Okay, back in the day when we owned property up north, one of the things they did for a few years in a row under Ken Squire's leadership was called tent meetings. And it was a tent that would house over a thousand people. Not house, but seat over, I should say that way, seat over a thousand people. And it was set up and there was a big kids tent set up and there was meetings for, I think it was usually a week or two weeks long, but people would come from all over and have these big meetings and, and all kinds of guests would come. And, and they had an issue with security. And I was just young and dumb enough to go, hey, me and my buddies will stay the night every night to make sure everything's secure. And we set up cots on the stage and it was freezing and uncomfortable, but um, nothing ever got stolen that we're aware of. So anyway, there you go. Um, that was part of that history. Another one was always a high value on guests. And this, this in the notes was the beginning of the host team. Towards the end of World War II, in, on July 12th of 1944, here was a note that I saw. It was suggested that everyone, listen to this, that everyone be appointed on a friendship committee to greet newcomers for the good of the church. What I love about that is this. We have said for years, please don't show up and wait for the show to begin. The hope is that as you come into the doors that you're able to get to know certain people. And I know for some of you, it's way out of your comfort zone, but what we don't want this to be about is sort of this show and then you sort of go home, but that community is built. And there was a high value even all the way back to this note from 1944, the idea of greeting, getting to know people. It's why um, in, in 20, gosh, I think 13, we opened up the lobby. If you were here before 2013, if you went out these double doors or out the exits here, there was literally about 12 feet in front of you a giant wall. And there was a restroom that nobody ever used. I don't blame them because it's right there in the lobby. Um, but, but you had to go around the corner, and what it was was the nursery. And we opened it up because what we wanted was space for people to be able to hang out between our gatherings on Sundays, which is also part of the vision. I, I posted a picture a little while back on social media of the new lobby that will be even bigger than that because, again, what we want is for people to spend time getting to know one another between gatherings. And the hope is it becomes more than just at a church facility, but that you begin to build those bridges where you're getting connected in groups, you're doing life together. It becomes more than just being here on site, getting to know people. But that was part of it. Another one was um, this church has always had a passion for younger generations. And in fact, before the word teenager ever came about, and I shared this a couple years ago, but um, January 2nd, 1936, a meeting was, the meeting was open for discussion of the question as to whether it would be advisable for the young people to have their own um, leader, uh, and Brother Johnson and Brother Henning suggested it would be a good thing for them to have a youth pastor and to elect and select their leader as it would stimulate interest in their meetings. And then it says, uh, a motion was made by Brother Nyblood, which again, I went to school with a friend named Russ, uh, the Nybloods, I've known them for, for you know, 35 years now. So that was in the notes. It says, a motion was made by Brother Nyblood that the election of the youth pastor leader 
would, uh, which had just been made would be revoked and that the young people's leader be elected by the young people themselves at their own business meeting um, with their own vote for who would lead with the understanding that Brother Earl Henning would hold the office temporarily until the time of meeting was decided upon. And that was 1936. If you fast forward to 1958, Another cool note was this. With the children's Sunday school and church on a steady increase and realizing the need for expansion, this is when it was on 4th and Delta, um, where Dairy Queen is, uh, the board uh, voted unanimously to start looking for a future site and to check into building designs to advance as the Lord leads. And, And that's when you get to uh, a, a committee that was put together to find property in Marysville. And if you go back to the 50s, this was all pretty rural and kind of neighborhood along with large lots and a lot of trees and woods right here, kind of in this vicinity. This was actually zoned, and it still is zoned for um, houses, neighborhood. And um, they purchased this property on November 10th, 1961. So three years later, they found this lot, and over you know the years, they would buy up lots adjacent to it so that now that we have the 3.8 acres that we have. So this lot was purchased. There was a house on the lot that at one point in the early 70s became what they called a youth center. And there was ping pong, and they mentioned games and a place for youth to meet. That, there was also, and it might have been the same structure, I couldn't f- figure this out, there was either that structure or another house where uh, it was the parsonage, where the pastor would live, but the pastor didn't live there, the youth pastor did. The youth pastor was my father-in-law, Terry Bleak, and uh, my wife, Heather, would ride her trike around the church parking lot back in that day when they lived in the parsonage. So kind of, again, another cool history there. Um, under Pastor Isaacson, that's when our current auditorium was built in 1963-64. Um, Pastor Masters, in 1977, headed up two different building programs. As I've said, this was built in 64. The Fellowship Hall Wing, which is now our kids' wing, was built and grand opened in 81 um, to the tune of $400,000, which would be about a million and a half dollars in today's economy. Although this part of the U.S., it's, it's more than that. But anyway, um, if you, then the office wing was built in 1986. So there was always th- this idea of how do we continue to look at making space in 1958. There was some notes about realizing the growth, putting together um, a committee to look for property. And some of the names I love, uh, O.B. Richardson. Anybody remember O.B. and Lenore Richardson? There's a few of us that may remember those names. Um, I'll fast forward a little bit here, but some of the, the, the meeting highlights, again, I'm, I'm paring down who, who was responsible for the carpet. But in 1979, 1979, it says, on January 16th, Jim Hopkins moved, uh, made a motion to enlarge the foyer um, and make an exit door to the east, seconded by Rick Ruckty. What I love about those names is, first of all, Rick and Shree are still part of our church today. I love them, adore them. I was friends with Darren, their son, uh, in high school. And on top of that, it mentions Jim Hopkins right there. Jim Hopkins was not only a part of the leadership of this church, but he was also my middle school math teacher at Marysville Middle School right over here when I was in seventh grade, and I did amazing in that math class. Anyway, so, but um, another thing I want to mention is Jim Hopkins was responsible for the final decision um, for me to become the janitor, which we'll get to in a minute, and I have a complaint to make, so we'll get to that. Um, It also says, uh, in 1979, Pastor Masters reported a hope for a master plan for this church campus. In other words, kind of a final picture of what this whole thing could look like. And it says, Bob Yulstead moved that the board recommend um, in the meeting that a master plan committee be formed. 
That was 1979. There was a couple of different renderings of a master plan for this facility. One of them included a new um, administrative uh, wing and, uh, and auditorium or, or sanctuary up where the upper parking lot is now. And I actually saw some of the designs for that plan when I was looking at, at some of our old blueprints and pictures of what they thought maybe could be. But we, in the last 10 years, I mentioned this, have been putting together what would be kind of a final master plan, and that's what we're moving forward on as we've talked about, and we'll get into that later. But that was uh, 1979 uh, into 1980. Here, here's uh, some of the, the details I wanted to mention. Um, August 12, 1980, Bill Clune moved to OK, the, the, uh, uh, the general contractor, to build the Fellowship Hall wing. Bob Ulstead seconded and carried uh, th that, that go forward. And then Jim Hopkins moved that September 7th be the groundbreaking in 1980 for the Fellowship Hall wing. Um, I skipped something. I mean to go back to, oh, yeah. Here's where it was. On February 18th, 1979, a special meeting about carpeting the church. It's, I'm narrowing this down, you guys. I'm super excited. You're not. I am, okay? Because I have wedding photos that I try to get rid of the carpet on in all of them. But um, it says this, 476 yards at $2,261 for carpet, an additional fee for glue and incidentals. So the whole tune of the carpet was $3,052. So I'm getting there. Some details. In 1981, uh, it says they are putting in the underlayment. The wall boarding is nearly completed. And in, um, uh, it says May 16th, I believe it was 1982, was the dedication of the Fellowship Hall Wing. I'm going to fast forward through some of this, but in 1983, Tim and Karen Westerfield came on as music and education directors. 1984, Terry Bleak resigned as the youth pastor, and Rich Smith took his place. Rich Smith is still here at the church after having pastored up in Alaska for a while. Lake Stevens, um, part of this church. I love him. He's incredible. Um, the 1990, Pastor Masters declared 91 a year of a commitment to prayer, witnessing, and giving towards the future building program. And then in 1992, Pastor Masters resigned in 1991. Pastor Ken Squires was hired in January of 92, um, who was my pastor. As I've been here since 92. Benny Perez came on in April, <laughs> excuse me, of 1992 as the youth pastor. And then uh, it says... In 1995, instead of doing the master plan that they had originally planned here, they bought the acreage up north, starting with 24 acres. Um, they added on to it a couple of different times. It became 57 acres that we sold in 2019. Let me get to this detail, because this is where it really starts ramping up. December 17th, 1995. Y'all taking notes, write this down. <laughs> a motion by Steve Chilson to hire Nick Baumgart as custodian. So this is where, come on, this is, they're starting to make really good decisions now. Okay, all the other decisions, pretty good. This one, come on now. We're, so um, it's a joke, by the way. Like, wow, he's full of himself. I'm joking. Okay, um, 1996, uh, this was a miracle. So in 1996, Heather and I had been dating for a few years and randomly been talking about the word marriage. One of the things that came up was, if we get married here, if you remember in 1996, this carpet in here was actually orange all the way up the middle, up the stage and everything, and there was pews, but we were like, we don't want pictures with this orange carpet. It's bad enough in the fellowship hall. We need, uh, what's going to happen? Here's the miracle. We didn't even have anything to do with this. In 1996, a motion and approval was made for the purchase of new carpet for the nursery and sanctuary. Okay? God is a miracle working God. You don't care about that. I do. And then another meeting minute was this. 
um, in 1999, uh, it wasn't a meeting, it was just a note in the notes. Uh, it says, hire Heather Baumgart in the administrative office. So again, just incredible decisions starting to be made, finally starting to gain some real traction. <laughs> just joking. <laughs> just kidding. Um, there's a lot of history, and, and if we even go back, you know, we can go back to the 90s or early 2000s and, and some of our own history, some of the outreach, the things that we've done. Um, but I want to look at Psalm 78 for a few minutes because I think it's important. At the core of who we are, Psalm 78 paints this picture that I want us to really make sure is etched in our hearts. It says, my people, hear my teaching and listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. And one of the things you need to understand when you look at Scripture is how powerful the oral history of, of God is in Scripture. And over and over, the handing down of God's faithfulness and stories of what he's done, as you and I read about the Red Sea or the escape from Egypt, as you and I read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as you and I read about David and, and, and Israel and the tabernacle and the temple and Solomon and different kings, for you and I, we can read the history. But in a world where literacy was kind of rampant, in, in particular then, it was an oral history that would pass down. And when the psalmist is talking about this, he's talking about the power of handing down the power of who God is and the love of who God is to generation after generation after generation. And so it says in verse 3, things we have heard and known that our ancestors have told us. But then it goes on to a shift from not only you and I having something handed down to what we're called to do. We will not hide them from their descendants we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He has decreed statutes for Jacob, established a law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them. Then it goes on and it says, uh, even the children yet to be born, as they in turn would tell their children, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. What I love about 90 years of history is this, that yes, you and I stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, but when Jesus, as some of his famous last words says, we are called to go and make disciples, the picture is this, it's disciples that make disciples that make disciples, that make disciples. And the last 2,000 years of Christian history is this idea of show and tell, that we show God's love to those around us, that we show God's love to the next generation, the generation after that. That for some of you, as you're sitting here and you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s or even 90s, for you and I to understand the burden of the next generation's loving Jesus, I can't help but to believe that if only people could understand the God that you and I have gotten to know through Christ. How could they not want that kind of grace? How could they not want that kind of forgiveness? How could they not want that kind of love in their lives? Is anybody with me when I say that? I can't help but go, man, this Jesus. And the history of a church 90 years old having always been about how do we sacrifice so that generations can know who this Jesus is. Time and energy and all the things that they've invested so that we could have what we have. It's easy to take for granted that we sit in a building that people built 50 plus years ago, going on 60 years ago. 
it's easy for you and I to just take for granted that we just gather and do our thing. But we're able to do that because generation after generation, as I've already said from Palumbo's and Isaacson's and, and, and Edwin Osimakopoulos Smith to Oliphant and Westerfield, Borkerving and Garka. Like I said, Obi and Lenore Richardson, Fern and Bob Yulstead, I, I was thinking about in my mind every time I heard the name Fern Yulstead for years, it was Fern and Winnie. Because there were two peas in a pod, Fern Yulstead and Winnie helped me. And that might not ring a bell for some of you, but for some of you it's like, I remember. It's so amazing to have this kind of history. It's also amazing to consider the kind of sacrifice that we've always made so that the younger generations can know Jesus. It's why we've said, hey, we're going to do tutoring for free on Wednesdays every week because we want kids to succeed. It's why we've always cared about having a healthy youth ministry. Yes, I was part of an incredible youth ministry, and Ken Squires wasn't fibbing when he talked about it. When I started, when I came here, Benny was brand new. He called me his first convert in Marysville. But the youth ministry was about 30 kids back then, and we watched over the years it grow to I don't, somewhere around 500. It was unbelievable. But watching my friends give their lives to Christ, watching some people that I grew up and went to school with, and we became comrades in arms in Christ, this idea that we love Jesus together, in fact, you look at some of my wedding photos and you got all kinds of friends that we didn't start by knowing Jesus. We started knowing each other from school but became some of my great friends, others that I grew up with. I've mentioned Dwayne Berger. I've known him since we were two years old, way back when, and he's sitting right here. I, I know it's not about me and my history, but what I look at is, is the ongoing themes. The sense of, of God's covering and God's love over us today is because for generation after generation, this is what they've done. And we get to be blessed by that. But in Psalm 78, those first seven verses are a reminder. It's not just ours to have heard from our ancestors, but for us to go, that's awesome, I want that. But then for us to also bear the responsibility of what does it look like for the next generations to understand that. And I know I say all the time, and we all probably get tired of it. Our friends, our neighborhood, our co-workers, our family that we love dearly, that we're in it for them. And we need to not forget that. From the beginning, yes, it's a history of show and tell. Yes, that is great commission, disciples that make disciples that make disciples. But what does it look like for us to realize it's worth stopping and honoring 90 years of history? But at the core, what is that 90 years of history? It centers around what God's love in Christ has done for us. And so what I want to do for a few moments is, is take communion together. And honestly, I thought it would be very appropriate to stop on a day like today, and I know there's people online, I think they've already queued you, but if you got something there to take communion with, if you're in your living room. But for those of us in person, as you came in, you should have received that simple cup, and on top there, there's a wafer. If you didn't, we have host team members that should be ready to uh, come down the aisle and balcony main floor and grab those. If you need them, just raise your hand, and we'll make sure you get them. Raise your hand real high. We want to make sure as they come down, there's, there's, they're getting ready to do that. So keep your hand up for a moment. But, but let me say it this way. <clears throat> over and over, when we read the Gospels and, and, and the, the writings of Paul and Peter, they were always trying to recenter the church. What do I mean by that? 
Over and over, there were all kinds of agendas in church world. It goes all the way back to the first century. There were people that were, were telling about how important this certain thing is and, 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 and you know, what, what to do about it when, when there was deep persecution and the church couldn't gather. And there were certain agendas of, of, of immorality that would creep in. And over and over, Peter and Paul and John and different leaders in the church were trying to bring them back to center. They're bringing stuff down, so keep your hand up for a minute there. It's a good workout, too. So keep it. Anyway. Um, but over and over, the reason I say it is because our church fathers from 2,000 years ago were trying to recenter the church on the gospel because it was that important. And at one point, when the message of Christ was trying to be hijacked by heresy and bad teaching and immorality at the church in Corinth, what did Paul do? Paul said, you guys, there's a lot of issues going on. And there's a lot of ways that the message can get hijacked. And let me just say it today. It's so easy for the message of Christ to, to, to become kind of second fiddle to all kinds of political agendas and social agendas. And I always want to be careful with this. Yes, by all means, get your ballot turned in. Vote. Please do that. But aside from, from that, and I'm not going to let this conversation be hijacked, Paul was saying on the night Jesus was betrayed. And when you read 1 Corinthians 11, all of a sudden you feel like, what, what is he doing? He's dealing with all these issues in Corinthians. And there was turmoil and there were... There were, um, there were uh, um, Groups that, that circled the wagons around each other and everyone's out, they're not good enough or they believe this and that. And, and all these factions going on at the church. It was a big issue. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul has dealt with different issues all along the way in Corinthians. And then he finally says, hey, look, it centers around communion. And we call it communion. But what was Paul doing? He was saying, let's go back to the basics. And I want to always take us back to the basics. And I'm sorry uh, I get emotional about this, but I never want the gospel to be hijacked by anything. And for 90 years in this church, it's been about the gospel. And one of my favorite parts of it, maybe I shouldn't choose a favorite, one of my favorite parts of it was during that Vietnam War era. And, all, and some of you that lived through this political and, and social and war and all this stuff going on, and some of us have watched Ken Burns, that's what we know of it, some of you lived through it. But, but Pastor Levi Larson, was always about the work of the Spirit in your heart to keep you anchored to the gospel. Over and over and over, again, calling fasting and asking the church to pray so that the church in that era would not get sidetracked by those things. The same thing Paul did. Hey, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of conversations. But he said this, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And as disciples were gathered in their upper room, it says he broke it and he gave it to them and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance. Hey, in the midst of all the agendas and the stuff, in the midst of, at times, a rebuke by Paul, knock this stuff off. He said, don't feel so condemned that you forget Jesus. His grace is still there. And for you and I, I want you to peel back. I don't say that top layer. Peel back that top layer there if you're in person. and There's a little wafer there. And I want to take us back to the basics of Jesus and the gospel and God's love. He said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance. Go ahead and take that away for right now. Father, thank you that in the midst of all kinds of agendas and uh, social climates in our world today and political climates in our world today, it isn't a lot different from 2,000 years of church history. But as we look at the, the, the scriptures and what Paul was writing and James was writing about the persecution, upheaval, and the church dealing with it, 
He was constantly, they were constantly bringing them back to center. Thank you for the body broken for us. And I pray, as we take that wafer and remember what Jesus did, that you did that, that we could be made whole. We did that, that we could find spiritual wholeness, so that we can find emotional wholeness, so that we could be healed. And I pray for some that need healing in their body, some that need healing in their emotions, some that need your work in their hearts. Sometimes, maybe for some, it's a recommitment to who you are. Jesus, thank you that your body was broken, that we could be made whole. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians as he brings them back to center to say this. After supper, he took the cup and he handed it to the disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this when you drink it in remembrance of me. And that for you and I, where do we find grace? Where do we find forgiveness? Where do we find hope? Where do we find life? Just like in 90 years of our church's history, it's always been in the work of Christ, it was the same with Paul, the church in Corinth. It's the same for us today. It's not about you earning it. It's not about us being good enough for it. It's about us receiving God's grace through the shed blood of Jesus. That's why Christians sing about blood. It seems weird to outsiders. Why do they sing about blood? Is this like some weird gory Halloween thing? No, no, it's not. What we know is it's the blood of Christ that paid the price for our sin. And that's what Paul says. Anchor yourselves to that. That's what our ancestors have always done in 2,000 years and in 90 years. And that's what we'll always do. Go ahead and take that today. Jesus, thank you for your shed blood that we could find forgiveness. Thank you for what you've done that we could walk out hope and life. Thank you for 90 years of history. Thank you for who you are. God, together we, we commit ourselves to all owning being part of a welcoming committee, a fellowship committee. We, we, we open our hearts, God, to what you desire as we continue to dream and pray and look towards what's coming. We thank you for who you are and what you've done and let it always be about the work of Christ in a human heart. Many of us have received it and know that and I pray that would be the anchor of who we are. In Jesus' name and everybody said amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.